sign who's just a white. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am deeply honored to be joined by a hero of mine, Richard Rice. Thank you so much for talking with all of us today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Alex. Should I call you Alex or Alexander? Uh, you can call me anything you want while we're doing this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Alex is fine. I am looking forward to... Um, kind of wending our way through your life and also your writing life as we explore some of the books that are dear to me and so many Adventists. And I'm looking forward to getting behind the scenes a little bit and learning about your uh, process in writing the books, uh, the relationships that you formed both inside Adventism and outside Adventism uh, through your scholarship. Let's get started, though, with uh, just a quick overview. Um, How did you find your way into teaching and writing about Adventist thought? Oh, thank you. That is a wide open question. Okay, I I am the I discovered I was the grandchild of on both sides. My grandparents were overseas missionaries. My birth father's parents went to Africa for a term. My mother was born in Korea, the uh, daughter of a couple that got married just to go to the mission field. And so I grew up with stories of missionaries. And when I visited my grandparents, at least some of them, I saw artifacts from the countries they brought back. So I, I grew up really within an Adventist culture, and mission service was very much a part of of the Adventist uh, story, shall we say. Um, I wound up going to a wonderful small church school in Worthington, Ohio for a number of years. And it was a small church, but a church that was very sensitive to people and the problems that the families might have. And uh, our family, my birth family, had some difficulties. My parents finally went through some traumatic times and then separated and divorced. And it was during those years that I realized, in a sense, growing in realization, uh, I was surrounded by a community of very caring people. The church school was small. The uh, teachers knew us very well. We formed good friendships within a fairly small community. And it was kind of an ideal place to grow up. I always have pleasant memories of that. Uh, Everybody knew everybody else on the street where uh, a lot of us lived. And then at the end of the street, uh, they put in a beautiful little Adventist church. And I remember uh, standing outside. They brought all of us out of the church school, which was just a short distance away. And I think I was in second grade. We were holding hands and a crane took the steeple of or took the top of the steeple up and planted it church. So, you know, church was kind of the center of social and spiritual life for a number of years. That's such a great metaphor to think about um, the way that you've sort of, you saw this um, 
obviously a very memorable uh, architectural moment, but also awe-inspiring. Um, and uh, of course, it's connected to Adventist Church. And you were there at a educational institution, a small uh, elementary school. Let's um, let's think about the way that you then um, morphed your your um, understanding of this community, and then you began to explore your education, um, interested in religion. Um, how did that go? Where what were some high points as you um, proceeded thinking about um, community and uh, faith? Well, thank you for that. I, I guess I asked for baptism when I was 10 years old. I had a deeply devotional experience when I was in junior high. And I think uh, I went to a public high school for two years for the first time. Uh, in ninth grade, we went to Arizona for a couple of years. And then um, somewhere along there, ninth or 10th grade, I decided I would be a minister. Hmm and sort of followed that through. The, our family, uh, by then I had a new dad, we moved to back to uh, the La Sierra area so I could stay at home through college. I finished high school there at the local Adventist Academy and took theology at La Sierra College and then accepted a call to the ministry. The conference president lived across the street from me and my senior year, I was washing my car out in the street. He came over and told me he'd like me to come to the Southeastern California Conference. So that was the, <laughs> we had gotten acquainted, and that was sort of the basis of, the, of my uh, interview. And so I went seminary back and forth, and I can go detail there. But it was, it all seemed to be kind of continuous. You know, mm. I, I didn't have a... Uh, a radical departure from one uh, way of life to another. It just seemed to go naturally. And I, I had supportive and uh, I think sensitive uh, teachers of religion in all the way from grade school through, uh, through college. And I had a great time at the seminary. Um, I should mention- what, what were some of the things that stood out to you at the seminary? I think there was an openness to the um, serious academic study of biblical literature as it was uh, pursued by experts outside the church. I'm thinking particularly of my New Testament class and things that they discussed there. I took a seminar from uh, a leading New Testament scholar at the time in the synoptic problem. Mm. And it was in the late 60s. Uh, some of us enjoyed that sort of approach to the Bible very much. Others, as it turned out, within the seminary from schools and other parts of the state felt that their confidence in the Bible was somehow being compromised by this emphasis on how the, the, the documents and the collection of documents that we now have in the Bible came about. And so I understand it was quite a change at the time. I know someone who went to the seminary and eventually went elsewhere to get a PhD in New Testament studies. And when she went to the, uh, what should we call it? The University on the West Coast, um, 
a well-known uh, academic institution. Uh, she had never heard of the synoptic problem. And they were quite surprised, and she was quite surprised to discover how things had changed at the seminary in just the few years between the time I was there and then several years later when she was there. So there was a, a change in the atmosphere at the seminary uh, in, the, in the 70s in response to some of the problems that people had during the time I was there. You, you use the word openness there and also process. Um, was there, as you, you know, it doesn't sound like you had a crisis of faith when, when there was a sort of critical issue that needed a little bit more context to appreciate what was happening with authorship or the Bible or um, how we might apply a hermeneutical method to the text. It doesn't sound that you, like you had any kind of dark night of the soul through this process. Um, is that right? Were you just sort of uh, open to what was presented and you felt like each critical issue just gave you something else? What was that? Well, I think I'd, I'd go back to both high school. Uh, I mean, the, um, the um, two years at an Adventist Academy there in La Sierra, I had a wonderful Bible teacher, Reuben Hilde, and he was uh, very effective in communicating Christianity to young people in a very serious way, but a, a very attractive way. Then when I got to college, I had people like Royal Sage. Um, Fritz Guy was probably the most uh, influential of my teachers in theology. He worked us very hard in a class called Introduction to Theology. And mm. I still have the 20 to 25 page outlines that he required of us. And this was a, a sequence of two two-hour classes, and I, it's like a book. <laughs> wow! And then after that, he went on to school. But th these were people who were there was no question about their dedication to Adventism, their dedication to the church, and uh, at the same time, their willingness to be very um, open to questions about the Bible and the uh, challenges of the. Uh, various academic uh, uh, communities that surrounded biblical studies. So I, I developed a sense of uh, enjoyment with the intellectual stimulation, but never a sense that somehow what we're studying will, will uh, jeopardize or undermine your spiritual journey. Hmm. So you finished up at the seminary, and what happened next? Well, <laughs> good question. I fell in love my second year in college with a girl uh, who was in the same swimming class with me. And after, uh, after our workout one day, it was a competitive swimming where we worked through the four competitive strokes, she asked me to um, a reverse social the women's club was putting on. Mm. And as I looked into Gail's eyes, I began to think of the girl I'd been dating the previous summer. <laughs> And I had to make a big decision if I said, uh, if this girl, if I said yes to Gail and the girl asked, well, then I'd be in an awkward situation. But if I said no to Gail and then she never asked the other one, uh, I'd be out completely. So I said yes to Gail. And uh, I think, look back and say, that was the most important decision of my entire adult life. Incredible. <laughs> One evening with her and I said, this girl has 
all the qualities that I could be happy with forever. And after 55 years of marriage, I still feel the same way. What a story. Uh, but uh, there was a problem because uh, she just wanted to be friends with lots of guys. And some of them were very interested in her. So I had to, you know, kind of move in mm -hmm. to get them out of the picture and yet not be so aggressive that I pushed her away. So um, after, after three years of dating, um, I asked her to marry me. And uh, she, to my delight, said yes, but she had a year of nursing left. And I was told by my conference president that I had to go to the seminary for a year. And to continue this personal narrative, I did not want to leave her surrounded by enterprising professional students <laughs> and go back. I was afraid I'd get a Dear Richard letter in uh, February in Michigan. <laughs> so, uh, fortunately, her parents were supportive and she took a year off from uh, her education, which made a couple of her nursing instructors very unhappy. Sure. I got some straight lectures from, <laughs> from them. But it all worked out. She came uh, back with me. We got married, spent a year there. Then we came to California, and she finished nursing while I interned at the Azure Hills Church. Then we went back to Andrews while I finished, and she just decided to get a master's degree in education while she was there. Hmm. Then we came back, and while at the La Sierra Church as youth pastor, I began to realize if I'm really committed to going to graduate school, it's going to be easier to get in and get through and leave church employment now in my mid-20s than wait five or six or ten years or something like that. So... I took a leave of absence from the Southeastern California Conference, uh, got into the school I most wanted to go to, University of Chicago Divinity School, and Gail got a great job as uh, an instructor at the University of Illinois College of Nursing. So that's what we did for the next four years. Can you take us to the, the time there, uh, Hyde Park, uh, Chicago, uh, what was it like to walk those hallowed halls, go to Roosevelt Chapel? Um, what what was the intellectual ferment like for you? Well, it's interesting. While I was still at Andrews, there was a lecturer, a well-established scholar from who was talking at an invitation of, uh, of some of the undergraduates there. And somebody asked him, uh, where would you go to graduate school today in religion or something like that? And he says, oh, I think the University of Chicago would be terrific. They've got, you know, some creative thinkers there. They're dealing with major issues and so on. And so it had a reputation for being academically demanding, but also academically rewarding. And so I sort of put that Fritz Guy had gone there and he was a mentor of mine in uh, in college. 
And uh, I know a number of Adventist scholars had gone there. Siegfried Horn, for example, mm -hmm. uh, had gone there and others as well. Graham Maxwell, well-known at Loma Linda, had gotten his PhD at the Divinity School. So it had a strong reputation among Adventists. And I went there. Living in Hyde Park was an interesting experience. I'll never forget uh, Richard Daly was was... Mm. Richard Daly was uh, mayor uh, mayor of Chicago and uh, uh, legendary in his yes. <laughs> being the boss. And I was reading Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, Nature and Destiny of Man, where he develops a very sophisticated view of sin. And so I had a kind of, a, you know, in, in the news on a daily basis, I had an illustration <laughs> of the kind of complexity that Niebuhr was talking about. And so it was a great place to do theology. It was it was fun at that time in our lives to live in a big city and have access to art galleries and fine restaurants and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And so I think we enjoyed the city. We made some wonderful friends, very good friends from uh, members of other religious communities. And so I, I really, the whole thing was a, a rich and rewarding experience, as well as uh, very challenging intellectually, because they had a, a reputation of being a little easier to get into than some schools, graduate schools in theology, but uh, harder to get through. Sure. Yeah. Um, was there one uh, idea that you remember encountering um, or a process of thinking that you think um, affected you uh, for the rest of your theological journey? Yes, uh, there was. Um, people who've lived as long as I have may remember that in the 60s, the death of God controversy yeah. Uh, well publicized. The most famous cover in the history of Time magazine uh, had a black background and then three large words. There is a public, uh, I, uh, you know, a, a well read uh, magazine, news magazine, and what they did was talk about the death of God theology that was promoted, shall we say, by just a few theologians who felt that the, the effects of analytic philosophy and logical positivism, which were the sort of the predominant, um, I mean, the predominant philosophical move in the English-speaking world was analytic philosophy mm -hmm. and the verification principle as a way of determining uh, uh, logical meaning. And they decided that if you couldn't establish some sort of empirical verification, you didn't have a basis for claiming cognitive meaning. Mm -hmm. And so they were saying, you know, you can... You can have religion in some ways, but you might as well forget trying to talk about God because that idea just doesn't bear up under rigorous logical scrutiny. So that was kind of, that, that was in the 60s. I started graduate school in the 70s, and they were reacting to the kind of uh, secularism and its effect on uh, theological language. And I went to school 
with some powerful minds relatively early in their careers who took on that idea and uh, presented some very powerful arguments for the existence of God. And I think going back and, and thinking it really sort of bolstered my confidence in what would be the very foundational convictions of Christian thought. And one in particular was uh, Schubert Ogden, who um, mm. has written, a, wrote a book entitled uh, The Reality of God, in which he argued that that's the only way to make sense of religious experience in particular and human experience in general. Um, along with that, Ogden was a strong proponent of what we would call, or what later came to be called, I think, process theology, but it uh, used as a major resource the philosophy of two thinkers known as process philosophers, mm -hmm. Alfred North Whitehead and Charles Hartshorn, mm -hmm. and uh, Schubert Ogden and John Cobb. Ogden passed away uh, several years ago. Cobb is still alive and um, promoted the idea that process philosophy gives us a way of thinking about God that helps us make sense of Christian claims about religion. And the central idea there was that God is uh, interactively involved with the world. That is to say, God not only has an effect on the world, but the world has an effect on God. Yes. And there's an exchange there. That was a significant challenge to the traditional concept that God is absolutely changeless. Mm -hmm. The um, sovereign view. The sovereign view and the idea that um, God could not change because if God is the greatest conceivable being, as God was understood by Anselm, for example, in a famous argument, the ontological argument, if God is the greatest conceivable being, then he must have every positive quality there is. And if God changed it all, then God would become less than perfect. So a perfect being cannot change. Well, process thought, as developed particularly by Charles Hartshorn said, well, there, there are two ways or there are two qualities that God has. There are qualities that never change that are absolutely the same through all eternity, but there are others that do change. And so they would make a difference between uh, virtues like uh, moral goodness and uh, um, omnipotence and omniscience and so on, but to say the content of your knowledge could grow as the object of your knowledge. Hmm quality of your knowledge could stay the same. So the quality might be the same, but the content could shift. So there was a what was called a dipolar view of God. Mm. So God's, God's nature, unchanging, God's experience, constantly changing. Thank you so much for going into that background. I think um, it's going to be interesting to hear how you that um, continued to shape your thinking as you began writing The Openness of God, which is going to be the, the uh, where we will conclude our first of uh, three conversations. Take us from Chicago 
to Southern California. And as you begin your career uh, teaching, um, what, what were you uh, observing about the students and what made you think that you wanted to um, contribute uh, this, uh, translate perhaps is maybe a better word, uh, these ideas into language that Adventists could uh, be familiar with and perhaps even embrace? Well, that's a fascinating question. Thank you for that one, Alex. I, um, I managed to get through in four years, which was a bit unusual there. Yes. And I won't go through the, uh, I would say, providential moves back and forth that enabled me to do that. And this is in the day when people are typing out their dissertations. So I, I typed mine um, under certain, under uh, unusual circumstances. I won't give you the background, but I had the last 200 pages to type uh, within four or five days. Wow. And so I'm typing um, on a, on a typewriter. This is before computers came in. And I had to satisfy the requirements of the uh, dissertation secretary. And anybody who's been in graduate school runs across the name Kate Tarabian, a manual for writers of theses and so on. And uh, her successor, um, I had to talk to, uh, I said, I'm going to type my own. He said, well, we don't recommend that. So I need to see a sample of your typing. So I showed him. He said, well, okay, but remember, this is something you have to keep in mind. So I managed to do that, typing 50 pages a day. You had to put footnotes at the bottom and count the spaces you needed to put them in, and boom. I remembered ironically hearing that Steve Jobs and his collaborator began inventing and developing the um, the um, uh Apple computers the year after I finished. <laughs> anyway, I finished that when I went to La Sierra to teach, I had a full teaching load. And I just, I was thrown into now the demands of teaching. And I just worked hard the summer I got there. In the first year, I was teaching Adventist beliefs, Ellen White and the church. Uh, but I did focus on Adventist doctrines. Um, philosophy of religion, and then I taught a sequence to the theology majors in theology and philosophy of religion. So I was able to focus in the general area I was interested in. Uh, but if you want the specific background of this openness of God idea, I was invited to, uh, I was invited to, in the early 90s. Now, let's see when it was. Um, 80s? It was it was in the 70s, the summer of 1979. Okay. I gave a paper on the relation between God and the world at a conference on history and religion on the La Sierra campus of Loma Linda University where I was teaching. And I had to give a title to the paper, so I came up with The Openness of God. I think it was a send-up of a title of a book called The Openness of Being, by E.L. Mascal, a Catholic scholar I had read in graduate school. And so uh, I delivered the paper, and some people said, nah, it was a pretty good paper. It deserves a longer discussion. And so I spent the rest of the summer working up a longer version, and I had a, a manuscript maybe 90 pages long or something like that. 
And so I thought, well, maybe this could be published. Uh, Richard Coffin of Southern Publishing Association heard about it, asked me for a copy, and took it to his, his uh, acceptance committee, and they accepted it. He said, uh, there's just one thing. Uh, we are now being merged with the Review and Herald. And so it'll be published under Review and Herald imprint. So in late 1980, The Openness of God came out. And uh, I guess this doesn't matter because your people won't see it. But <laughs> He's holding the up the original Openness of God. Yes. A, uh, I remember a reviewer said, uh, I don't agree with the content, but the cover picture is beautiful. <laughs> So uh, uh, it came out in the late 1980s. Well, evidently, when the uh, what I did was take some of the ideas of process thought. God is dynamically interacting with the world uh, that God has created, and I applied the idea to some central uh, doctrines related to God, like uh, creation. Uh, providence, predestination, prophecy, and so on, uh, then I saw the potential, or I tried to explore the potential of this interactive view of God uh, with the world to um, some major elements in Christian thought, and it came out, but it evidently stirred up quite a bit of controversy, and the uh, Review and Herald decided to withdraw the book. Well, that stirred up a lot more controversy within the church. People were saying, can't we discuss some new ideas now and then? <laughs> and so the book was reinstated, so to speak. Uh, it was not that easy to get. And when the first run uh, uh, was exhausted, that was the end of it. Oh. Then a few years later, uh, out of the blue, I got a letter from Clark Pinnock. And uh, I knew who he was because he wrote so much to in the published a great many articles in Christianity Today, uh, leading conservative uh, publication. He said he'd gotten a hold of my book, read it. And this is a letter that came in 1984. And he mm. says, I liked it very much. I'm a convert from Calvinism to Arminianism, and uh, so I wondered what happened to the book. Was it withdrawn? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, it was. And he said, well, uh, maybe you can get it republished. He says, I, um, I know the people at Bethany House Publishers in Minneapolis, and they've republished some things that I've suggested before. So maybe they'd be interested in your book. Lo and behold, I sent them a copy and they said, yeah, we will publish it. So they published it under the title of God's foreknowledge and man's free will. They said, nobody knows openness of God. Hmm. So uh, we'll go with this title. Everybody's heard of this problem. Yeah. So they published it. And now that same book is available from Wiffenstock, uh, from uh, Eugene, Oregon, I think, yeah. and uh, known for republishing things. So it's it's still available. That's incredible. It's been in print for, what is that, um, several generations now. Yeah, it really has. And 
Basically, the central idea of the book was, as we've talked about, God is interacting with what's going on. And the essential ideas were that love is God's very nature, God's inner reality. And so God created beings in his image who were capable of love, that is, responding to his love, and that required giving them the freedom of choice. So instead of determining what their response would be, God gave them the opportunity. And so we see evidence of human freedom, let's focus on that, in the first few chapters of the Bible, where where God, uh, I like to see a difference between what I would call creative freedom, freedom to name the animals. I, I think God didn't have a list of right and wrong names, but God said, you decide what they should be called. And of course, in the ancient world, to name something in a sense was to sort of bring it into the full sphere of reality. And then there were also freedom. Uh, there was also a kind of freedom we might call moral freedom, where the options were not equally good, but the, the freedom to obey or disobey God. And if there was disobedience, there would be drastic tragic consequences. And that's the story that we read about in Genesis 3. And we've all experienced the consequences of that. So um, love is a part of God's very nature, but it also seems to indicate that giving creatures love means that God is not directly responsible for everything that happens. Uh, freedom really enters into it. And I think this, this background where there's an interaction between God and the world is helps us understand a number of biblical descriptions of God, such as God testing Abraham by requesting that he sacrifice Isaac, which he, in, in the most controversial, challenging chapter in Genesis, <laughs> Genesis 22, uh, he is willing to go through with that as a manifestation of his loyalty to God. God interrupts the sacrifice and then says something very interesting. Now I know the level of your commitment and so on, that you won't even withhold from me the most precious thing there. Uh, occasionally, God asks questions about the future. Um, God is described as experiencing regret in Genesis 6. Things go so far south, people have rejected God's plan for human life to such a degree that the Lord was sorry he made man. That's what the Bible says. Well, that's not the only thing evidently God felt, uh, but it was the background to God's destroying the earth through the flood. We've got... Uh, Descriptions of God being surprised, delighted, and disappointed in the Bible. Well, Luke 15, the return of the prodigal, describes the father as being just thrilled to have this son back. Um, that, that this was a discovery. This was something that might not have happened. And this was a way of, re, of, of treating a prodigal that would not have been typical of people at the time. You know, a son that disgraces the family, should be gone forever. But the father welcomes him back. I mean, that must have been a tremendously surprising end of that sequence of parables of discovery, of recovery, I should say. 
And uh, so it, it seems to give a picture of God as being delighted. Um, Isaiah 5, uh, God says, I planted a vineyard and was expecting good fruit. And I was, what happened was not what I expected. So you get this picture of God. And then uh, maybe the most dramatic would be uh, in Jeremiah 18, the the um, description there, the analogy there is potter, clay, God, and his people. The potter's working at the potter's <laughs> wheel, and uh, a vessel is destroyed in his hands, and he reshapes it. And so what God says to his people as a result is, are you not clay in the potter's hands? And then the account goes on, if I declare concerning a nation that I'll build it up and help it prosper, and it rejects me, well, then I will change my mind. And that expression in the English versions is really quite specific. I'll, I'll change my mind about how I treat this. And on the other hand, yeah. if things are going south, to paraphrase it <laughs> uh, in a trite way, if things are going south, and I say, okay, I'm going to reject that nation or whatever, and it turns around, I'll change my mind. So you get the picture of God from a variety of passages as being in dynamic interaction with the people he loves and cares for and has certain objectives for. And the most direct path to the fulfillment of God's purposes is not one that they follow. So God has to change his direction in a way that will try to bring them back. So God is affected by what's going on in the world. So I, One of the metaphors I remember when I um, first read The Openness of God when I was in academy was the language you used about um, the kind of field of play and that God is not up in the stands as this sort of um, omniscient observer, but was down in the field with us in the mud. And yeah. I've always appreciated that metaphor. Interesting. Now, this position runs into serious uh, opposition uh, because of the sort of the classical view you can read in Plato and Aristotle that ultimate reality must be changeless. I think... Uh, if you think about Greek thought, the world of time and change is inferior to the realm of ideas, which never changes. Yeah. And so if you want to elevate God, and, and Greek philosophy, I think, without question, had quite an influence on the way in which early Christians thought about God, uh, because they wanted to preserve Christianity from uh, becoming an, uh, just another version of, uh, you know, classical theism or even uh, polytheism. Mm -hmm. And so that was one way. They appealed to some solid Greek thinkers, mm -hmm. and the Greek thinkers had quite an influence on early Christian thought, and that was one of the elements there. Ultimate reality must be changeless. God is on the ultimate level of reality. Therefore, God doesn't change, and that's that, that contributed, I think, in some ways to the, the way in which Christianity was preserved in the ancient world. But there was also, I think, a development theologically that led to this, 
when we get to uh, uh, the Reformation uh, and the problem, the sort of the background story, we're moving very quickly. Luther's quest for confidence and reassurance and certainty of salvation that arguably drove him to the anguish he felt as a monk, wanting so much to be sure. And then through his study of the Bible, through its original languages, and came to see that what the Bible says about God is that God's election and decision and ability to save us is entirely from God's side. So God becomes the source of our salvation. We can be absolutely secure in God because we know that he has taken complete responsibility for our salvation, predestination. Well, the logical, shall we say, the logical consequence of that for Luther and for Calvin was, well, if it's God that decides unilaterally about who is saved, it must be God who decides who's saved and who's lost. And so the idea of double predestination became part of that. And that led to <laughs> some real questions as well. Um, bondage of the will, that was uh, Luther's response to Erasmus. And um, there was a reformed scholar, Arminius, who just said, no, I think that doesn't do full justice to the range of biblical discussions about God, because we do have the idea, these appeals to um, Christians to make their calling and election sure, to be very careful about falling away. And you find this in the early letters of the New Testament, which were written before the Gospels. Be very careful to maintain your relationship with God, because you could lose it. And um, so you, you look at that part of the Bible and you say, no, there, there must still be an option here. And so um, Arminius took the position that there is freedom. We are free to say yes or no to God. But what was, what was retained of the traditional view was the idea that God has complete knowledge of the entire future. And that raises a serious question. Is the future already definite, so clear, so precise, so detailed that it's perceptible from God's standpoint, and we're just finding out what's going to happen as time goes by? Or do is it really open in the sense that when we are given an opportunity to make a decision, What's indefinite becomes definite as we decide. And it seems to those of us who took Arminius seriously and applied the kind of questions he was asking to the full range of biblical material, that God created a world which was partly determined but partly open. And God, in a sense, is on a journey with us. And God can see all possibilities, but as they become actual in reality, shall we say, or in history, they also become definite in God's own experience. So the world is 
God's adventure as well as God's invention. And God is going, is journeying with us as we face the challenges that day-to-day living presents us with. Well, I thank you so much for going through and summarizing uh, the open view of God there. I think I can uh, only speak for myself, but I know uh, when I've talked about this book with other Adventists who have read it um, and your additional books on the subject, I think it's really helped to free folks who have really struggled with this idea of a sovereign God who doesn't seem um, at all uh, connected to our life. And you've really um, given us some rich metaphors for understanding, as I remember writing down when I read your book, Love is God, and recognizing that that key idea of God um, uh, in the world with us um, is, uh, I think, something that's given so many of us a lot of hope. So thank you. I'd like to, as we're um, wrapping up here, maybe kind of zoom out for a moment uh, and and just reflect on uh, this. Obviously, there was some controversy that accompanied your work. And, you know, it, Adventists are Arminian, and many of our early pioneers were um, very um, adamant um, in talking about the role of human free will. It's such a part of our understanding of the Sabbath and the choice uh, having to do with uh, uh, our view of uh, eschatology. Why do you think that there were some um, issues with the official Adventist publishing of the book? And as you talked with folks afterward, what stood out to you as uh, sort of a a major misunderstanding that some people have with uh, the open view of God? Probably one of the major sources of reservation, if I can put it that way, would be the role that confidence in prophecy, or the, the significance of the prophetic books of the Bible have played in Adventist history. The, the sort of the common sense premise of prophecy is that God looks into the future and tells us what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that would not be possible if the future weren't there for God to look at. So doesn't that indicate that everything was uh, laid out in for God, the future is just as clear as the past. And so it's one model might be uh, one metaphor. You're sitting on the top of a hill overlooking a road that comes around the circle of the bottom. And you can see from your perspective which cars are coming from one direction and which from the other direction. And you can, uh, you can tell them uh, you could anticipate you could you could prophesy what they will see when they get around the hill that you're standing on so it's Mm. sort of you get high enough and you look down and the whole thing becomes apparent and god of course has the perspective of looking at all of history Um, as as i've indicated that raises some serious questions about 
certain passages in the Bible. And one of the things that those who've engaged in reacting to the open view of God have said, uh, a kind of concession is that, that those of us who've taken this position have underscored certain passages in the Bible that have not gotten the kind of attention that they might have uh, needed and that they're not as easily dismissed as saying, well, that was just a metaphor or something like that. That there really is a, a more of a dramatic dynamic interaction between God and uh, what's going on in the world. Now, I, I like to use the example um, that the language of perfect anticipation and infinite resourcefulness when it comes to God, okay. Um, Two key ideas. Two key ideas. I think one would be God knew the range of possibilities that might be pursued by God's creatures. Um, like uh, we can think of good parents today, uh, it's being, it was a challenge to see your children grow up, realize that the range of options they had as they grew older would increase. Ideally, it should. But at the same time, there were certain risks there because they might fall under the influence of, of uh, friends that would want them to do things that would be ultimately destructive and so forth. And so you somehow, you, you might know that to a degree more fully than your children uh, and try to prepare them for it, but at the same time realize that your control uh, you would not be doing them a favor by trying to take complete control of their lives. Uh, there was a tragic story of a house full of children with parents here in Southern California that controlled them completely, did not send them to school, did not let them have any contact with the outside world. And one of the older children finally escaped from the house called in some authorities or let people know and the authorities were called, the children have now been taken away from the parents and the parents are, have been uh, sentenced to prison time because they've so mistreated their children. And uh, we don't want to be those kinds of parents, but at the same time, we want somehow to minimize the risks that are involved without eliminating or diminishing the freedom that we want to be cultivated. So I think if you if you begin to think of interpersonal relationships in terms of what leads to um, thriving uh, relationships and what leads to the expressions of love where people are allowed to pursue their own course and yet at the same time to bring happiness to others, uh, it seems to be... Um, the kind of rewarding analogy for God's relation, and I think it's not difficult, as we've already indicated, to find evidence in the Bible where there, um, there is this kind of interaction between God and God's people. Well, thank you for um, answering that. And I think we, I have one last question for you, but I just want to let folks know that we'll be continuing this conversation and we'll move up to your work in the reign of God, a kind of comprehensive Adventist theology uh, textbook familiar to uh, many students who have um, uh, taken uh, 
religious studies or um, theology courses in Adventist schools for uh, several decades. And then we'll talk about uh, believing, behaving, belonging, in which I have uncovered some um, uh, letters that I found in the archives here, the Spectrum archives that I'll be sharing as well. So stay tuned for those upcoming conversations with Dr. Rice. And I guess my last question, since we're talking, uh, we're kind of going through a chronology of your biography and your intellectual biography, your writing, as you're um, thinking about this uh, early stage, uh, some folks are often afraid of controversy. They want to steer clear. A good career is kind of keeping everyone happy. And you've uh um, set a different course and you've sort of wrote what you thought. Um, as you look back, at least on the experience you had with the openness of God, what stands out as, um, as uh, the, that legacy? And, and as you reflect on it, was it worth uh, the controversy? Well, I would say certainly yes. I think on the one hand, uh, what was controversial within the Adventist church um, and wound up being even more controversial in the lives of many people outside the church, has given me a chance to connect with some of my fellow theologians in interesting ways, uh, which I've appreciated. Um, it made me appreciative of certain aspects of my education and my graduate education as well, that I believe I was able to bring to an Adventist perspective that for me enriched it in in some uh, ways that I've I've appreciated. At the same time, I have not tried to make this um, a controversial aspect of my relationship to the church. Uh, I haven't, un unless I'm teaching a class where this becomes a kind of an obvious focal point, philosophy of religion or theology, I haven't brought it he highlighted it as a part of many of the classes I've taught, say, on the Loma Linda campus, where I'll have just two hours a week with students for one quarter, because I don't want this to take over the discussion, which it can, as it sort of did the SEFT <laughs> with our time together today. But, um, and, uh, but some know about it, some don't. It isn't, uh, you know, I haven't made this the major focus of my teaching although it's probably what I'm best known for outside. Um, so I, I think I've tried to be careful with it and not to, to push the issues to the point where I've encouraged people to think about whether or not they should be Adventists in light of whether the church would accept this idea along those lines. I, I haven't done that. Um, I've, you know, my dedication to the church uh, leads me not to want to go down that road, even though I feel it's a very helpful way to look at God. And I'm glad to make it available to people. I'm glad it's available to people as a way of thinking about their relation to the church. So um, that kind of leads us to what you said will be the next subject of conversation, that is uh, Adventist theology at large and uh, the role perhaps of theology in the church and what contribution theology has to make to uh, the ongoing life of the Christian community. Well, I'm looking forward to having that discussion with you next. Thank you so much for uh, talking with all of us today. 
Thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.